All right, so today is Palm Sunday. All over the world, people are preaching sermons on Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem. We are going to continue in Luke chapter 6, though, because every year we do Palm Sunday. Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem to prepare for Holy Week. Um, Got that? All right, so now we're in Luke 6. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, his words, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with the story, the parable of the two builders. But don't miss what he says to begin with. Why do you call me? Notice it's not just Lord, but it's Lord, Lord. The person here uh, is, is emotionally invested in calling Jesus Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. So this would be like, do any of you call your boss, boss? Hey, boss. Or do any of your employees call you boss? Hey, boss. Um, It'd be like you referring to your boss as boss, then turning away and ignoring everything they say. Or or what if there uh, was a kingdom where all the people in the kingdom called the king Lord, or your majesty, but they never obeyed him. Jesus says, there's going to be people who call me, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. And the problem with calling Jesus Lord, or singing Jesus is Lord, did we sing about, did the word Lord appear somewhere? Yeah, somewhere. I mean, we sing about Jesus being Lord every Sunday. Right? The problem with singing Jesus, you are Lord, but not obeying him, that has eternal consequences. Imagine if, uh, there's a lot of books out there that are advice books, like the most popular one today is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, and he um, gives you advice for life, and then um, this one's on social skills, 12 rules. So if you want to write a how-to book, it's got to be 12 things going on. All right, that's kind of the trendy thing. Here's one on emotional intelligence, leadership. But what if these authors gave their advice, but the last chapter said this, If you don't follow my advice, I will send you away from me for eternity. You would go, they're nuts. 
I have to follow your rules or you will send me away from you for eternity? Who, who do you think you are, God? And in essence, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount without understanding that Jesus is claiming that he is God. In Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus tells the parable of the two builders, that's where he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? But I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Who does he think he is? God? Yes. So there are explicit claims in the Bible where Jesus claims to be, I am God, Jehovah. There are explicit claims where the Bible uh, writers call Jesus God. But then there are these implicit statements like, if you don't build your life on me and my commandments... I will send you away from me for eternity. So Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, um, isn't this teaching salvation by works? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, okay, but the one who hears and does not do them, uh, one, the house survives, judgment. The second, the house collapses on judgment day. And it's based on whether you do what Jesus is saying. Now, I think you all know what I'm going to say here. You could probably repeat along with me. This is not teaching that salvation is by works. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But if your faith is real, there will be works. So he is pointing out the fruit. Now, interesting, um, <laughs> by the time we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, we can feel pretty beat up. Boy, we've got to turn the other cheek and we've got to Love our neighbor as ourself and give and serve. And uh, I don't know. We, we, there's a lot of examination going on here. So I think it would be appropriate for, for me to remind us about where works fit in with a couple of illustrations. Um, some of you have actually had this in your house. I've given it to you to dwell on. This is my, uh, these are called magic rocks. And you put the rocks in an aquarium and you uh, boil the magic solution, which is some kind of, I don't know, crystallized rock formation. You pour it in, the next day you wake up and little crystals have grown on the rocks. Now, this is a great illustration of the rocks being faith and the, the little growth things being our works. This, here's why this is a great illustration. If we take the lid off and just put a little pressure on the, on the growth, it's going to crumble. 
we're going to have works, but if you put too much pressure on your works, in other words, if you start making them the basis of your salvation, guess what? You're going to be on a pile under your bed going, I'm not saved. Okay? The, the ultimate question is this. Are you resting on the rock? On Jesus? And yes, there's a time to examine your works. But there's also a time to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Um, other illustration I like to give is a football illustration where when the quarterback fades back, he usually has a primary receiver, but then he's got secondary, third, maybe four guys that he's, he's watching out of his peripheral vision. And who's the guy in Kansas City who he's, he's famous for looking and throwing it? I was going to bring a football, but I thought I might knock my wife out if I did that. You know, boom! Um, yeah. What's his name, Tim? Uh, Patrick Mahone, yeah, he's like he's got magic peripheral vision, right? And I guess Tebow used to be able to do that too. I heard a, a song on the comedy channel about Tim Tebow doing that, but I digress and I check my time. Okay. <laughs> Your primary receiver is Jesus. Your peripheral vision, yeah, there'll be works. But keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay? So, um, with that said, let's focus on, on this guy here who uh, built his house. Well, the, the one guy built his house on a rock foundation and drilled down, put the footings in, and built the house. The second guy... He didn't find a rock built on sand. But I'm sure the house was beautiful on the outside. But when the storm came, the one collapsed. So let's talk about three foundations that a lot of people are building their life on but will end up in disaster. Okay, Three foundations. One would be here we go. There, look at that. Beautiful picture. Building on the rock, building on the sand. Okay. First, the first foundation a lot of people are trusting in, they're banking on, is their bank account. Okay. Their riches. Especially in America. We have a lot of self-made people. In fact, um, Batavia has a statue. It's right in front of the old tell Joey's, of the self-made man. It's a, it's a man chiseling himself out of stone. Right? And we have a lot of self-made people. And if you try to talk to them about Jesus and their need for Jesus, they'll say, I don't need to hear that. I've got that all covered. I'm a self-made man. I've got a nice 401k, got my own business, 
I'm good. I'm not a weak person who needs religion. I'm banking on my bank. Right? And Jesus told a real simple story about that guy. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crop. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Retire and live the retired life. You've got it all taken care of. And what does God say? Now remember, Jesus says in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, if you even call somebody a fool, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So what does God say? God said to him, fool. God, God can do that. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? You know, when you die, it doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account. You fool. You didn't think past retirement. And a lot of people, their foundation, their whole confidence is their retirement account. They think it's a security. And, and, the, and even that may not be there. Right? Who knows what turns will take place in our economy. You know, the, the ultimate example of a person who had a false sense of security. In the book of Daniel, uh, there is a king named Belshazzar. He was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And if anybody uh, had it made, if anybody was secure, it was Belshazzar. He had all the riches of the world in his kingdom of Babylon. And uh, you talk about a security system. Uh, the walls of Babylon that, that encircled the entire city were so thick that uh, guards could ride uh, four chariots side by side with horses around the entire uh, inside of the walls, on, on top of the walls. All right? That's how thick Babylon was. So he's filthy rich, and he decides to have a party. And uh, he is drunk with all of his officials. And not only is he having a party, but he is using the goblets that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. So the goblets of the true God, he is using them to toast his false gods. He's mocking God. Drunk, secure, rich. What could go wrong? A hand appears and writes on the wall. And he starts trembling. His knees knock together. And uh, he, he says, what does it mean? He calls in the wise men. They don't know what it means. And they say, get Daniel. Daniel will be able to interpret this. And, Dan, and in fact, he, he promises him, if you can interpret this, I will make you the third highest ranking person in my government. 
So Daniel says, oh, okay. What it says is, you have been weighed and found wanting. King Belshazzar, you're going to die. And then here's what happens. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. How did he die in, in this secure kingdom? Well, Babylon had these, these huge walls, and they built the city right smack dab on the Euphrates River. So the river flowed under the wall through the city out the other side. While he was partying, the Medes upriver dammed up the Euphrates River, and it lowered. The soldiers crawled under the wall Boom, took over the city and killed the king. You fool. So, um, it's great. Your business is successful. You have a 401k. Your, your life is good. Are you trusting in something, though, as unsure as riches? Let me give you a second faulty foundation. Amazingly, it begins with the letter R. Religion. Now, we've looked at this parable dozens of times before. And I think we can, be some, be, we can become so uh, familiar with Christ's parables that they don't have the impact that they were meant to have. But when Jesus first told this parable, it was the most controversial disturbing, revolutionary, insulting story the people had ever heard. Right. Here it is. Two people go up to the temple there in Jerusalem to pray. One, a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were looked at as the religious perfectionists. They kept the law to the letter. The most hated of sinners were tax collectors because they embezzled money, extorted money from their fellow Jews. These two guys go up to the temple. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, twice a week he goes without food. And he tithes on, the, the Pharisees were famous for tithing on even their little seeds in their seed garden. Right? So if anybody has religious cred, it's this Pharisee. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven so, so he's got nothing to offer. He's got no religious credibility. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All I have to offer is my sin, but I'm sorry for it. Would you please forgive me? All right? 
and, and here's the controversial, disturbing, revolutionary, insulting conclusion to the story. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The religious guy went to hell and the horrible sinner was declared right before God. We go, yawn, heard it before, but do you realize how revolutionary this is? What's the most anti-religious book in the world? Some would say the Communist Manifesto or maybe Dawkins' The God Delusion or Hitchens' God is Not Great, Sam Harris' Letter to a Christian Nation. I think the most anti-religion book in the world is the Bible. If by religion you mean doing religious rituals to win God's favor. Now, God prescribed lots of rituals, sacrifices and, and offerings and bring your, your, your rams and your bulls and your goats to the altar and sacrifice them. And we're going to have a new moon celebration every month and a Sabbath celebration every week. And there'll be special convocations and feasts and assemblies. But here's what he says to the Israelites who were just doing these things to pacify God, but they didn't really have repentant hearts. They didn't really have hearts that loved God. Here's what God says in Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts. Well, you did. You're the one who, who required this of us. Yeah, but, but, but not with just mechanical hearts that do it out of religion. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon and your appointed feast my soul hates. My soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It's Palm Sunday. Next Friday, Good Friday, and Easter. Yes, there are rituals that we do. But God's not impressed with just going through the motions. He would rather have you be the tax collector saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm trusting in you and your mercy than trusting in yourself and presenting your religious offerings to him. Right? Then last faulty foundation, righteousness. And, and by this I mean my own righteousness, my self-righteousness. The Pharisee, again, he, he presented his religious works to God. He also presented his own righteousness to God. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, 
unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can't even believe I'm in the same building with him. In other words, he was presenting his righteousness to God. Doesn't work. You know, I, I had a Bible study this week. None of you were there, so don't worry. It's not about you. Um, and we went over the thief on the cross. That there's this thief who all his life is an unrighteous man. And in his dying moments, he trusts in Jesus. He says, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there were, were some people who were nodding their heads, amen. Again, because we've heard the story of the thief on the cross so many times. But there was one person there who was really struggling. And they were struggling with the thing that so many people struggle with. It just seems too easy. And what I tried to explain is this. You've got only two options. Present your own righteousness before God or you present Christ's borrowed righteousness before God. His righteousness is a gift and it's perfect. Your righteousness falls short. Even your best works are sin-tainted. So here's, here's the problem. In Galatians it says this, For all who rely on works of the law to, to get into heaven, to be accepted before God, are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You've got to keep God's laws perfectly, all of them. So, choice A, you stand before God and present to him your own righteousness, but you've got to do it perfectly. Or you, you like the tax collectors say, have mercy on me, a sinner. But I've heard that there is a perfect righteousness that Jesus offers me. I trust in him. And I present his righteousness to you. I pray that this holy week, as we remember what Jesus did for us, as he entered into Jerusalem, as he died on the cross, as he rose from the dead, I pray that we are not trusting in our religious efforts, that you're not trusting in your righteousness, but your hope is built on nothing less, on nothing else than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So let's pray. Lord, we've heard the simple truth that you substituted your life and your death for us. And all who humble themselves and trust in you will be forgiven and counted righteous. So Lord, this week, 
as we celebrate Easter, Good Friday, Holy Week. May all the glory go to you. Thank you. Thank you for dying and rising. In your name we pray. Amen.